Didn't they all do an amazing job? Um, I'm sure that Bron and Lily and some of the parents might have a few years less of their lives, but um, that was amazing. That was actually MCAC's first children's Christmas play, because in the other years, yeah. <laughs> Boys and girls, I'm really proud of you guys, because um, every year up until now, they've done songs, but this is the first time they've done a whole play with many songs, and you all did such a great job. And there were some last-minute casting changes as well, and um, they all did great. Eleanor, you did a fantastic job filling in last minute. Um, it's really great to see you all. I hope you are able to have a pause from all the busyness that this end-of-year time brings and that we have a moment um, to think about what this play represents and what this story is about. Now, I know that Christmas is a time when we talk about the birthday of Jesus. Um, even though technically it's not December 25, um, it's an opportunity for us to think about the meaning of Jesus' birth. But there's another birthday I want to talk about today. Does anyone know what famous musician's birthday is today? Simon, do you know? <laughs> Good guess, but no. Anyone? Any classical music enthusiasts? Yes, Micah? You cheated. All right. Today is the birthday of Ludwig van Beethoven. He was born on December 16, 1770 in Bonn, Germany. His piano concertos, his sonatas, his string quartets are very well known, but he is most famous for break, uh, groundbreaking work in symphonies because he was the very first one to bring in an orchestra with vocals. Um, and he wrote these symphonies. Now, we know a lot of his symphonies, but the one that musicians say is the greatest of all time is Symphony Number no. 9. Now, this 70-minute masterpiece of Western classical music has four movements that culminates in four vocal soloists and chorus singing a text adapted from a poem by Friedrich Schiller called An die Freude, which we know in English as Ode to Joy. What's truly amazing is that Beethoven composed this Ninth Symphony, which has many instrumental parts, vocal parts, right, whole orchestra, while completely deaf. He just knew the sounds in his mind, and he composed this 70-minute symphony while completely deaf. And in fact, when it premiered on the 7th of May, 1824, he insisted on conducting it, even though he couldn't hear anything. And so the orchestra actually had an, an actual conductor standing next to him, and that conductor told everyone, ignore him, just follow me. <laughs> but he still enthusiastically conducted the choir and even kept going even after the music had stopped and didn't realize that he had a standing ovation until the soloist gently turned his body around and then he saw the audience on their feet, waving their hats, waving their handkerchiefs to show them, show him how incredible that symphony was. Three years later, on the 25th of um, March, 1827, Beethoven died from liver failure. But the legacy of Symphony Number no. 9 lived on. Sometimes it was used for evil. Apparently, it was Adolf Hitler's favorite song, and so he used it for his birthdays as well as for some of the propaganda of the Nazi. Japan's imperial government also used it to promote nationalism during the Second World War. So there's a little bit of negative history, 
But for the most part, Ode to Joy has been used throughout the generations as an anthem for freedom. In fact, the Ode to Joy kind of version we know today is different from the original German. But when you look at the original German translated into English, it actually says in the first stanza, Joy, bright spark of divinity, daughter of Elysium, fire inspired we tread thy sanctuary. Thy magic, thy magic power reunites all that custom has divided. All men become brothers under the sway of thy gentle wings. And there's four more stanzas. stanzas. But because of this call to unity, in 1972, the Council of Europe made Ode to Joy its official anthem. And in 1985, the European Union did the same. So if you go to the European Union's official website, they describe how Ode to Joy, minus the lyrics, they just have the, the song, the tune. This anthem, they say, expresses the European ideals of freedom, peace, and solidarity. During the Chilean dictatorship in the 1970s, women sang the Spanish version of Ode to Joy on the streets of Valparaiso and from the inside of the Tres Alamos concentration camps. In 1989, in Tiananmen Square in Beijing, China, during the student protest against communism, the students blasted Ode to Joy from their makeshift loud uh, speakers. So did you know? I didn't know until I did the research. There's a history of Ode to Joy being this anthem for freedom. One of the most famous performances of Ode to Joy, bringing it back, was on Christmas Day, 1989, just a few weeks after the fall of the Berlin Wall. Leonard Bernstein, an American conductor whose parents were Jewish-Ukrainian immigrants, gathered musicians from the former East Germany, West Germany, UK, France, Soviet Union, and the US, and put them together to perform Beethoven's Symphony No. 9 at the Concert House in Berlin. Over 100 million television viewers from 20 countries tuned in to witness this historic moment when they, Bernstein chose to replace the word Freude, which is joy in German, with Freiheit, which is freedom. And they sang this song with the background of hammers chiseling away at the Berlin Wall. It was a symbolic moment declaring that healing had begun. A quieter but still incredible moment when Ode to Joy made a difference was in 1924. A hundred years after the, the first time the symphony was performed in the world. In February of 1924, the New York Symphony Orchestra was performing Ode to Joy at Carnegie Hall and they broadcasted it on radio to celebrate 100 years of Ode to Joy. The following day, the New York City Orchestra received a letter from someone who you will all recognize. Her name was Helen Keller. And she wrote, I have the joy of being able to tell you that, though deaf and blind, I spent a glorious hour last night listening over the radio to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. I do not mean to say that I heard the music in the sense that other people heard it, and I do not know whether I can make you understand how it was possible for me to derive pleasure from the symphony. It was a great surprise to myself. And she went on to describe how someone, you know, they were all listening to, to um, Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 9, and she was in the room with everyone, and someone suggested to her, hey, why don't you touch the speakers to feel the vibration? 
And so they unscrewed, you know, the area, and, and so she touched directly the, uh, the vibration. And then she describes how she felt. I could actually distinguish the cornets, the roll of the drums, deep-toned violas and violins singing in exquisite unison, how the lovely speech of the violins flowed and plowed over the deepest tones of the other instruments. When the human voices leapt up, trilling from the surge of harmony, I recognized them instantly as voices. I felt the chorus grow more exultant, more ecstatic, upcurving swift and flame-alike until my heart almost stood still. Of course, this was not hearing, but I do know that the tones and harmonies conveyed to me moods of great beauty and majesty. I also sensed, or thought I did, the tender sounds of nature that sing into my hand, swaying reeds and winds and the murmur of streams. I have never been so enraptured before by a multitude of tone vibrations. As I listened, with darkness and melody, shadow and sound filling all the room, I could not help remembering that the great composer who poured forth such a flood of sweetness into the world was deaf like myself. I marveled at the power of his quenchless spirit by which out of his pain he wrought such joy for others. And there I sat, feeling with my hand the magnificent symphony which broke like a sea upon the silent shores of his soul and mine. Although she could not hear, she did hear. And what she heard brought her so much joy. And as I was reflecting on this song and her and, you know, everything that um, I just shared, I wondered, could it be that this is how we hear God? For we are very far from Bethlehem. We too search for Jesus, but we haven't seen the star with our own eyes, nor have we heard the angels with our ears. So then how will we find Jesus? It might be through another sense. One of Helen Keller's friends was Henry de Van Dyke. He had a very interesting life, and I've actually found his life very fascinating, so allow me the indulgence of digressing for a moment about him. He was a pastor for 20 years. He actually studied at Princeton University, so I felt like, you know, alma mater. Um, And he actually ended up teaching English literature there for many years. And then his former classmate, Woodrow Wilson, who became the U.S. president, appointed him as an ambassador to Luxembourg and Netherlands when he was a diplomat for a while. So pastor, English professor, diplomat. And then he became an author. He wrote the hymn, Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee, to the tune of Ode to Joy. And he also wrote several Christmas stories, including the book, The Other Wise Man. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard of this story. I had never heard of it until I did my research. And this story he, he made up is about a fourth wise man who was supposed to journey with the other three wise men to go see Jesus. But there's a dying man on the road where he was supposed to meet up with the others, and he stops to help the dying man. So he misses the caravan that leaves to go see Jesus. By the time he finally makes it to Bethlehem, the baby and the family have, have fled to Egypt. So then he goes to Egypt to try to, to, help, to find Jesus. And along the way, there's a young child that needs saving. And so he saves a child. When he gets to Jesus, he misses uh, Egypt. He misses Jesus again. And he travels all over to many different countries, still seeking Jesus, but doing good, charitable things along the way. Finally, he gets to Jerusalem, just as Jesus is on the cross. And... 
he has one last chance to go see Jesus before he dies. But there's a young woman who's about to be sold into slavery. And so he stops to help this woman. And then Jesus passes away on the cross. And as he's himself about to die, he's feeling sad that he never got to see Jesus. He has spent his whole life looking for him. But as he lays dying, a voice tells him, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it to least one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. And then he dies in a calm radiance of wonder and joy, realizing that he has met Jesus. After reading this book, Helen Keller wrote to her friend Henry Van Dyke. She said, in her, they had a correspondence. She said, you speak so kindly of my work, I feel a strong impulse to tell you how helpful your book, The Other Wise Man, has been to me. My experience is somewhat similar to that of the pilgrim whose soul yearned for a vision of the Holy One upon earth. I too have dreamed of high deeds and longed to share in the great activities which shall lift mankind to a nobler life. I too have been denied, held back by numberless difficulties. I also have known a life of struggle and quest. I have journeyed between the hills and the waves, attempting one thing after another, and have met with disappointments. But like Artaban, I have come to feel the presence of God in the humble things I can do, despite my limitations. You see, Helen Keller felt the presence of God in helping others in her darkness, despite her own limitations. In the daily things that she did, she felt the significant and yet tangible presence of God. Just like she could feel the music through her fingers, and, and she, for her that was hearing the music in a way that moved her soul, even though she couldn't see God with her eyes or hear God with her ears, she could sense his presence in her connections with other human beings, in the giving and receiving of mercy from one another. We may not see God with our eyes. We may not be as, as blessed as the shepherds were in hearing the angels sing. Or as blessed as the wise men were in coming and being able to worship Jesus face to face. But we can still sense God in our lives. In his love for us, in our love for one another, in our lives and everything that works out and unfolds before us. Beethoven began to lose his hearing at the age of 26. It became complete by the time he was 44. And he begged and he prayed and he pleaded and he bargained and he had a hard time because you can imagine back then, right? There weren't sign languages developed. There wasn't Braille. There was no way for him to participate in society. So unable to participate in conversations, he became antisocial. He drank heavily and frequently, and he suffered from depression. But through his grief and pain, he wrote this in his diary. In 1818, Beethoven wrote, With tranquility, O God, will I submit myself and place all my trust in thy unalterable mercy and goodness. And towards the end of his life, he wrote to his nephew, Carl, God never deserted me. In due time, someone will be found to close my eyes. And so it's fitting that Beethoven's last symphony was not about suffering. It was an ode to joy. 
How could he have joy? This man who suffered physically, right? Who suffered socially and emotionally and, and for 12 years he had not entered the social scene. At one point they thought uh, he was arrested because someone thought he was just like a homeless guy just kind of wandering around. And yet he was able to write an entire symphony about joy, an ode to joy, a praise of joy. Because Beethoven realized that if you experience joy, Joy in, in a friend, right? Joy in finding a friend, a kindred spirit. Joy in finding love. Joy in nature. For Beethoven, he was happiest when he was near trees. He loved trees. Joy in nature. Every single bit of joy that he ever felt for him was proof that there was a God. The climax of Ode to Joy, the climax of the Ninth Symphony, the last stanza which in English says, Brothers, above the starry canopy, there must dwell a loving father. Do you fall and worship, you millions? World, do you know your creator? Seek him in the heavens. Above the stars must he dwell. You see, we are far from Bethlehem, but God is not far from us. In Psalm 139, the psalmist says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me. Right? Even if you're hiding from God, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is his light to you. It was to be near us that Jesus was born so many years ago in Bethlehem, to become Emmanuel, God with us. Born in a dirty, smelly stable and laid in a manger, Jesus is not afraid to come into our darkness, into our mess, into our brokenness. And we can hear him if we listen with our hearts. And we can see him if we look with the eyes of faith. So whatever you're going through right now, wherever you are in your search for God, I pray that you may discover that God has always been with you. He has been guiding you and holding you. And may that truth bring you joy this Christmas season. Would you please stand with me as we sing Henry Van Dyke's hymn, Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee, to the tune of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, Ode to Joy. Please stand. Join me in closing prayer. Father God, thank you so much for loving us and teaching us to discover you. Help us to use those senses of faith, of Sabbath, rhythms of grace, of listening to you, to discover you perhaps in unexpected places and unexpected ways. I pray that during this Christmas season, when it can become about so many other things, may we learn to listen with our hearts and see with eyes of faith and find and worship you. Thank you for all the people who are here today, those watching online, those who are traveling. We pray that your mercies will go with us and that we will discover the joy of knowing you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.